To give a full account of this story, I have to tell you that I'm a child of divorce. My mother divorced my biological father when I was about six, and uh, when that happened, my mom and my siblings and I moved from San Antonio, Texas back to West Springfield, and we moved in for a little while with my grandparents. Soon after that, my mom was able to find a house for us to rent, but being a single mom who worked every day, she couldn't handle the after-school care for my brother and I. That fell to my grandparents, who looked after my brother and I after school, and then again on various days when my mom needed to do something or just needed a break. And after my mom met and married my dad, my grandparents would still take my brother and I on special day trips. My favorite was when they would take us to the Route 11 potato chip factory, the old one, the original one, and we would uh, eat some delicious chips and then we'd have lunch at the Wayside Inn. I have an irrational love for Route 11 chips because of those trips. I mean, they are objectively good. They're good potato chips. But to me, they are the best potato chips in the world because they taste like goodness and my grandparents love. I tell you all of this because it's part of the story of losing my granny. She was someone I saw on at least a weekly basis growing up. I loved my parents, but there were times when I liked my grandparents more. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I went to see her in the hospital a couple days before she passed away. She was in a coma and I was 17, so the conversation was pretty brief. I told her I loved her, that I'd miss her, and that I would cheer on UNC basketball extra hard for her that night. The last... <laughs> I know that last part is shocking. I was at a wrestling tournament a couple days later when she died. I wasn't prepared for what her loss would feel like. I wasn't prepared for what the finality of death would feel like. Although, to be fair, even now, when I experience loss and death and grief, I still don't feel prepared. I've spent the summer rereading Harry Potter, so please forgive this digression. But the fifth Harry Potter book introduces a type of magical creature that uh, for the first four books had existed, but up until that point could not have been seen. They were invisible. They're called Thestrals, and they are creatures that can only be seen by people who have seen, felt, experienced, and processed death. Harry is able to see them in the fifth book, and it is jarring for him to see these creatures who had always been there, but he'd never seen. And his best friends still can't see them. Within the story, it is an amazing way to talk about, to picture, the ways in which our experiences of death can isolate us from one another, how they can isolate us from even those closest to us. But in talking about being able to see these creatures, Harry learns that there are other students who can see them, and he forms bonds with them on the basis of being able to see these creatures that most of his other students cannot, classmates cannot see. Which is also a beautiful way of showing how our experience of, of death can bind us with others. So great an effect it is, experiencing and attempting to process what the death of a loved one means. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is the first, last, greatest, and scariest enemy we face. We spend most of our lives in denial of the fact that we one day will die. And we spend all of our lives trying to avoid, delay, escape the effects of death. 
We don't think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We wish our pastor would shut up about it. We don't want to prepare or imagine that one day we will die or that our loved ones will die. We just don't want to have to deal with it. And yet we all will one day. Our scripture passage this morning is about Jesus experiencing the grief and loss associated with death, namely the death of one of his best friends. It's a great story in how wonderfully human it is. It's about Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Lazarus, but really it's a universal story that will speak to and appeal to each one of us. It's a long story, so you aren't going to get much more from me today. But we're going to go to the story nonetheless. We're going to be looking at most of John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days and then said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. I'll admit, part of these details are hard for me. On the one hand, it is bold and it speaks to the relationship Jesus had with Lazarus and his family that he would return to a place where people had just tried to stone him in order to be with them in their hour of need. But on the other, on the other side of that, we hear the disciples say that Lazarus is sick and we read that Jesus loved him so much he remained where he was for two days. Why not leave immediately? Spoiler alert, Lazarus isn't going to make it. And Jesus' delay is going to become a key aspect of this story. But how often, when we are faced with death, do we not have our own ifs and why nots? We ask here, why didn't Jesus leave earlier? When it's a loved one of ours, we ask, why did it have to be him or why did it have to be her? Why couldn't God have acted and healed? What if, what if God had acted? What if we had acted? Our story continues. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. They missed the analogy. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep like what happens when I preach. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, known best to us as Doubting Thomas, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So somehow, know that Je that somehow Jesus knows that Lazarus has died, and they are going to do a miracle. Thomas, poor Thomas, he gets such a bad rap, is convinced that they are going to die, but he's willing to go all the same. Props for my boy Thomas. But they follow, they set out following Jesus to go to Lazarus. Lazarus. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. 
Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. And Martha isn't walking to, to greet her friend. She is moving with purpose because she has got a bone to pick with Jesus. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. It's in this moment that this story stops being a specific story about a guy named Lazarus and becomes a story for each and every one of us. It's at this point that this becomes our story. Jesus arrives and learns that Lazarus has died, although he had already told his disciples that Lazarus was dead, so I'm not sure he found out as much as he was told something he already knew, but I won't quibble with John too much. Martha heard Jesus had arrived in town, and Martha goes to see Jesus. Can I tell you, I love what Martha does here. Have you ever had a moment where you heard someone met with a person that you had a bone to pick with, and you couldn't stop thinking about all the things you'd have said to that person if you'd have gotten in a room with them? If I ever met the CEO of blank, I'd give him a piece of my mind. If I could ever have lunch with that senator, I'd tell him all the things that are wrong in my town. Well, let me tell you, Martha says everything to Jesus that I wish I could say in those moments when I experience grief and loss. If you had been here, if you had bothered to show up, if you loved him and my family enough, things would have been different. You could have healed him. You could have prevented this. He would still live. Have you ever wanted to say that to Jesus? Have you ever wanted to say that to God? Death is the final enemy, and we look to God to defeat that enemy. For ourselves, for our family, for our friends. For those whom we hold most dear. We believe that God will give us what we want, and if Jesus would just be for us, we wouldn't have to feel death's sting. This story is our story because it's about the thing we all fear. The thing from which we all seek deliverance. And I don't mean just those of us in this room. I don't mean just those of us who are Christians, those of us who follow Jesus. This applies to all of us, each and every one, all of humanity. This sermon series has been called Come and See, and the main thesis of this series has been that there are certain things that each and every one of us, every person, is looking for. We are all looking for a sense of direction and calling. We're all looking for forgiveness and a new beginning. And we are all looking to escape death. And if we can't escape it, at least come to grips with it. In the face of these general human needs and wants and aspirations, we hear the call of the gospel to come and see. Come to Jesus and see if those needs aren't met, if those wants aren't met, those aspirations aren't met in him. In Jesus, we all come and say, if you were here, if you were real, if you loved me, if you were all-powerful, all couldn't this whole death thing be avoided? Let's get back to our story real quick. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In response to Martha's very human question, we get a very churchy back and forth. Your brother will live, Jesus promises. 
Martha responds by parroting the understanding of the afterlife that she was taught. He will rise again on the last day. Jews believed, and by the way, so do Christians, that at the end of time, God will raise the faithful from the dead to new life. Martha is saying what she believes. Lazarus will live in the resurrection. She's doing the thing we sometimes do when we say after a loss of a loved one that they're in a better place and we'll see them on one day, which, while true, doesn't mean that we ourselves aren't hurting or in pain. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, they asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. The other two stories that we have looked at as a part of this series have included the phrase, come and see, where we got the title. But in both cases, the phrase was uttered by people bringing someone else to Jesus. Philip tells Nathaniel to come and see the Messiah, to come and see if anything good can come out of Nazareth. The woman at the well tells her fellow villages, villagers to come and see a man who might be the Messiah. Here we have the phrase, come and see, but in this instance, the phrase is said to Jesus himself. Mary and Martha are inviting Jesus to come and see the places of their deepest hurt and their deepest pain. They are inviting Jesus to come and see the thing we fear most, the thing that causes us the most anxiety. Come and see the most painful parts of our world, Jesus. And Jesus goes. Jesus walks with them to the very center of their hurt and their pain. Jesus walks with them to come and see death. And then Jesus wept. Friends, there is true hurt and pain in this world. There is real tragedy in this world. We will be knocked down. We will be injured. We will suffer. We will lose. But this verse, the shortest in the Bible, is to me perhaps the most important. We serve a God who weeps. We serve a God who hurts. We serve a God who has compassion, who suffers with us when we suffer. When we invite God to come and see, when we invite God into the most vulnerable places in our lives, our God is impacted and affected by it. God weeps when we weep. God cries out when we cry out. God suffers with us when we suffer. But that's not all God does. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he, could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for it has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Our God moves. Our God acts. Our God injects life where there is death. Our God does his best work in a graveyard. In this story, our God doesn't just walk with us to and through the most painful, most vulnerable, most moving parts of our lives. Our God doesn't just suffer with us in those moments. Although both of those would be revolutionary, moving, and beautiful. But our God goes one step further. God raises Lazarus. And in doing so, our God shows us that God is working to defeat the last and greatest enemy. God is working to defeat death. God is working to conquer that which worries, threatens, and destroys us. When we invite others to come and encounter Jesus, we are inviting them to a place where their deepest fears, their deepest hurts, their deepest anxieties can be healed and overcome. Jesus longs to weep with us in our hurts and grief. Jesus longs to heal us from our deepest wounds. Jesus longs to give us hope in the face of oblivion. These are things that all of us, each and every one of us, and each and every one of the people in our lives desperately need. Over the past few weeks, we have asked you to do a few things. The first was to write the names of people who need to encounter Jesus down on an index card. The second was to pray for those names. Pray for those people. The third was to invite them to our CD release concert on the 14th. Now let's see it. Show of hands. I'm going to make you raise your hands. Who has written names down on an index card? Who's prayed for those people? Who's invited them on October 14th? There's still time. And I still have index cards. We aren't talking about evangelism and we aren't badgering you about inviting people next week because we want to pack out a concert. That's not what we're trying to do. We are asking you to do this because we believe and we know and we know that you believe and you know that in encountering Jesus our basic human needs can be met. We can find guidance and direction. We can find forgiveness and a second chance. And we can come to know the one who is the resurrection and the life and hope and know that our God rules and reigns and works to defeat death. Works to bring about life, new life, resurrection. And gives us hope that we will know life and resurrection in the here and now. Friends, we are lucky. We are fortunate. We know the one who holds the keys to life, to death, and to resurrection. We know the one who is the source of our hope. But that means we are also the obligated ones. We are obligated to invite others to come and see Jesus, to encounter Jesus. 
so that they can invite Jesus to come and see the most painful, the most vulnerable, the most real parts of their life. And by inviting Jesus to come and see, to be, they, they can be healed of the worry, of the fear, and of the anxiety that we all suffer. Whom are you inviting to come and see? What are you going to do? Let us pray.